We all need a place to call our own. It may be a room. It may be a castle. It may be a shack. But a place where we're in charge. It's a fantasy, of course, this sovereignty. But still, we need it. Hi, I'm Brian Pearson, and you are in the cave. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. And whatever comes our way. Yeah, darling, go make it happen. Take the world in a loving place. Fire all of the guns and pumps and explode into space. I like smoking lightning. Welcome to the Mystic Cave, the summer edition. I'm reading from my novel, Passion Tide, published by Path Books in 2002. Having been a minister for almost two decades, David still has to recreate himself with every new ministry. He's learning that it's not about him so much as about the people he serves. This is Chapter 3, Part 3. David's first Sunday morning service, held at nine, was up at St. Columba's Church in Tofino. The church inside was dark and womb-like. In the tiny foyer, a table displayed some items for sale. The ubiquitous church plates, mugs, and teaspoons one encounters in churches all across the country. Postcards and notepaper bearing a photograph of the church on a sunny day, surrounded by rhododendrons and the hanging branches of a large willow. And a curious book, a collection of short stories written by a former minister. Sad, David thought, that some clergy felt driven to distinguish themselves in this way. What was wrong with the simple honor of humble priestly service? Inside the church, up in the sanctuary... A small older woman was standing on her toes, arranging flowers in large vases on the altar, her back to her new minister. He cleared his throat as he started down the short aisle, but she did not seem to hear him. Good morning, he said, but she continued working away, undisturbed. Finally, as he stepped up into the sanctuary just behind her, she spun around and let out a little squeal of surprise. She was deaf as a stone. When she spoke, it was a garble of unconnected vowels and consonants, too loud for the confined space. She seemed to be explaining to him who she was. He extended his hand as if to say, it was all right, she didn't have to explain anything. But this seemed only to confuse her. She turned back to the flowers, visibly agitated. David went behind the curtain that served as an entrance to the tiny vestry, an alcove with room enough only for a built-in desk, a chair, and a couple of coat hooks on the opposite wall. 
He tried to robe in the cramped space, contorting his body so as not to stick his elbow or his backside out through the curtain into the chancel area. That would not be the best way of introducing himself, he thought. David waited to hear music or some other sign that the congregation was assembled and ready. He didn't want to peek out through the curtains. That would look too ridiculous. So he stood, wedged in that tiny space, looking at his watch. Finally, in the absence of any audible signs of gathering, he decided it was time to go forth and face his new congregation. He parted the curtains and stepped out. All six congregants looked at him from their places in the well-worn pews, five older women and one scruffy-looking young man who seemed to have just wandered in, perhaps drunk or high. There was no organist. Mysteriously, the flower lady had vanished. The Lord be with you, David greeted them. Only one elderly voice responded, and with thy spirit. Okay, so she was the Anglican. This was going to be uphill. Might I just inquire, he said, where the organist is this morning? Don't you play, a woman asked. All our other ministers have played themselves. Or their wives, another added. I see, David said, his mind racing ahead to figure out his options. He could play himself. He had taken piano lessons throughout his childhood and was still a pretty good sight reader. But he didn't want to be the organist. It detracted from his role as presider. Yet, in this instance, he looked in the bulletin for the opening hymn, Awake My Soul and With the Sun. Yes, he supposed he was up to playing this one. He introduced himself then, saying he was sure they would be able to figure things out as they went along. They looked at him without surprise, as if that's precisely what they always did, week by week, figure things out as they went along. David sat down at the organ, a dated two-manual parlor model with a whole bank of percussion sounds and rhythms from rumba to swing, from which he kept his distance. He found a few of the more conventional stops, flute, violin, and bass, and launched into the last two lines of the verse by way of introduction. His was the only voice he could hear over the crackling rumble of the organ speakers, singing the verses as Mimi had reprinted them— Awake, my soul, and with the sun, thy daily stage of duty run. Shake off dull sloth and joyful rise to pay thy murming sacrifice. Thy murming sacrifice? <laughs> David sighed inwardly. Morning! Morning sacrifice! But yes, he had to admit this was a sort of murming sacrifice, their voices scarcely rising to the rafters, let alone to the heavens. St. Aidan's, back in Euclid, was a bit more promising. Someone was already seated at the piano as he entered the bright, sunlit church overlooking the harbor. There was a larger congregation assembled here, relatively speaking. There were seven, including Mimi, eight, including himself, nine, including the rotund, middle-aged man at the piano. He seemed to be trying to pick his way through a gospel chorus— David nodded a greeting to him as he approached. The man stopped mid-note and turned to shake David's hand. He said his name was Ernest. He seemed a bit simple. "'Are you playing for the service today, Ernest?' David asked him, hopefully. "'If you like,' he answered him. "'Yes, that would be great,' David said. "'Thank you.' But as the service began and David announced the first hymn, Ernest spoke right out. "'I don't know that one,' he said. 
Oh, David said, well, is there something else you could lead us in to help us get started? I can't read music, Ernest answered. All right, then, David said. Is there something we all know that you could play? Mimi was sitting in the second pew. Play Shine, Jesus, Shine, Ernie, she said. That's a nice one. Thank you, Mimi, David said. Okay, Ernest, lead away. And Ernest leaned into a plodding, chord-based rendition of what ought to have been a very lively song. Everyone seemed to know it. Mimi raised her hands slightly in a gesture of praise. The others sang along politely. David had prepared a homily concerned with God's act of creation, the beauty of the earth, and our responsibility to care for it. Halfway through, it began to dawn on him that the people here might interpret his comments as an unqualified endorsement of the environmentalist movement, and these hearty folks looked like they just might come out on the other side of that particular issue. But as his mind briefly wandered to consider how he might avoid causing offense, a sudden sound floating up from the harbor shattered his thoughts. It was a loud barking resounding across the inlet. The windows on the north side of the church looked out over the harbor, and from his place at the chancel step, David could see quite distinctly that something was thrashing about in the water. A dark form suddenly thrust itself out like a harbor seal, but larger. David couldn't help interrupting himself. Forgive me, he said, but what is that? The congregation, jolted into sudden attentiveness, followed his gaze. They smiled. That's just a sea lion, someone said. A sea lion, David asked, incredulous. Really? You'll get used to that, they said, smiling up at him, enjoying the moment of spontaneity. Thank you, he said to them. A sea lion? Well, what do you know? Thank you. Later, David's energies were depleted as he pulled the car up to the rectory. He did not feel very satisfied with his performance that morning. He had tried his best and hadn't done too badly for someone working outside his usual comfort zone. He had to give himself at least a little credit. But the young male visitor up at St. Columbus had got up and walked out, just as David was starting his sermon. St. Aidan's had been somewhat more responsive, but there was scant evidence of anything resembling Anglicanism. The gospel choruses and songs led by Ernest, pounding away on the piano, certainly put some life into the service, but it did not feel like liturgy, at least as David understood the term. And at both churches, he had found that the professional distance required of the good liturgist was hard to maintain. He looked out and saw these small clutches of mourning worshippers, content enough asking nothing of him except that he lead them through the time-worn rituals in his own way, whatever that was. Decades of revolving-door clergy coming and going two or three years at a time had drained from them any expectations that they might have had for any particular style of worship. They seemed happy just to be there. And oddly, he had to admit, so was he. The curtains moved in the window of the cottage next door as David gathered up his robes and books from the car. His arms full, he could only give a friendly smile in the direction of his unseen neighbor.
David wasn't sure if he got a day off with his new job, but no one seemed too concerned about his punching a clock. So on Monday, he finished his morning sit up in the attic and decided he might walk into town for a newspaper. There was no television in the rectory, which was okay with him, but he did miss his morning paper. He found his way to Murray's, a large convenience store on Peninsula Road, the town's main thoroughfare. It had a promising magazine rack with all the weekly community papers from around the island, from Port Alberni and Nanaimo, and most of the dailies from Victoria and Vancouver. What David was looking for, though, was Toronto's The Globe and Mail. Not only was it Canada's national newspaper, but, more important, it was a familiar friend from his hometown. By the time he arrived at the store, it was just after eight, all they had left were the tattered remains of the weekend papers. The bus, he was told, wouldn't be getting in for another half hour. That was okay with David, who did not have plans for the day anyway. He drove the frog prints a couple of doors down to the Peninsula restaurant for a coffee, parking in front of its street-side picture window. The pen, as it was called locally, proved to be the morning gathering place for the town's elders, older guys in jeans and windbreakers, lounging in booths or huddled around tables, cups of coffee coddled in their hands, telling stories, laughing easily. Several at one booth looked up as David entered, taking an interest in him as he made his way to a table by the window. When he looked over in their direction, they returned to their talk. He watched the lazy traffic making its way up and down the street. No one in a hurry, everyone taking the day as it came, just as he was doing. He finished his coffee, paid at the counter, and seeing the table of old guys looking at him again, nodded and smiled. One, whose arm was draped over the back of the padded bench seat, motioned with his hand for David to approach. He was being granted an audience. David walked over. That was a nice service you done for Stan, the old guy said, the others nodding. Thank you, David returned. It was an honor to have been asked to do it, especially being so new and everything. So, which church are you, another said. David pointed up the street. St. Aidan's, he said. They all nodded. David lingered for a moment, but that seemed to be the end of the interview. So I guess I'll see you around, David said as he turned to leave. Their goodbyes were offered by way of nods and hand gestures. David knew as he walked away that after he was gone, they would pronounce their judgment on him. He hoped he had made a good impression. But as he reached the door, one of them said, Nice car, and they all chuckled. He returned to Murray's, picked up a paper from the fresh bundle that the bus driver was just then dropping onto the floor in front of the magazine rack, paid at the cash, and made his way home. There was something about this pace of life he could get used to. David was just inside the front door of the rectory when the phone rang. He strode quickly down the hall to the kitchen and picked it up. Hello? Hello, David. The voice at the other end was instantly recognizable. Hello, Bev, he said. Then he froze, holding his breath. He waited for her to speak. It was bold for him to have called her by her shortened nickname, but it had been instinctive. It just came out that way. He hoped this would not have set the wrong tone. Both were silent for a moment. So, were you going to call us? She asked him at last. We thought you were going to call. I, I was, David said, trying not to sound defensive. I wrote you a letter. I guess you haven't received it yet. 
But you said you were going to call, Beverly said. It's important, David. It's important to the kids. I'm sorry, he said. Beverly let out a sigh. She clicked her tongue. No, I'm sorry, she said. I I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to start off like this. We were worried, that's all. I had to call Bishop Hovey at his home to get your number. I'm sorry, David said again. Neither one spoke for another moment. So, how's it going anyway, Beverly asked. What's it like? It's okay, David said. The drive was fantastic. We should, well, you know, we could take it sometime, maybe, as a family. Beverly did not respond. Again, they fell silent. You're all right then, she said finally. Yeah, I'm okay. Do you want to talk to the kids, Beverly said. Are they home, David asked. It's a professional development day, she said. Here's Catherine. Catherine's voice bounced onto the line. Dad? Hi, sweetie, he said. It's great to hear your voice. How are you? Is everything okay there? We miss you, she said. I got an A on my French lab last week. That's great, Catherine, David said, knowing he would be lucky now to squeeze in even a few words. He leaned against the doorway, smiling, as a rush of details poured forth about her life at school, about her tiff with Odessa, her best friend, about her tryouts for the basketball team. When the words finally ran out, she grew suddenly silent. So, are you okay, Dad? she asked him. Yes, I'm okay, he said, but I'm missing you all. So why did you do this, Dad? she asked. Why did you go away? I don't know if I could explain it, he said, honestly. It it just seems to be something I needed to do. He left it there for the moment. It sounded like she might be crying. But it's okay, sweetie, he reassured her. Really, we're still a family, and when I come back, we'll all be together again. Okay? Catherine sniffed into the phone. Okay. Here's Paul, she said. I love you, Daddy. I love you too, Catherine. Paul came on the line, his voice deeper and more resonant than David had remembered it. Hi, son, David said, surprised by his sudden retreat behind such a formal greeting, a greeting that might have come from his own father. How are you? Okay, Paul answered him, also stiffly. How's the car doing? I just wrote you about that, David answered him. I had to give it up in Saskatchewan, a blown head gasket or something. But I got this little sprint. It's painted green. You'd like it. Dad, Paul chided his father, a sprint has only three cylinders. You don't want a three-cylinder car. You're absolutely right, David said. I don't. But I didn't know at the time that it had only three cylinders. I think I sort of got taken advantage of. Dad, Paul chided him again. David asked Paul about his classes, about plans for his upcoming birthday, and then about the youth group retreat coming up the following weekend. I don't know if I'm going, Paul said. But why wouldn't you, David asked him. You'd have a great time, and they'd miss you. Yeah, but we haven't gone to church the last two Sundays, Paul explained. Mom feels too awkward, and I guess I do too. Like, what are we supposed to say if people ask about you? So, I don't know. It feels weird. Oh, Paul, David said, don't don't stay home on my account. It'd be so much fun. Paul didn't answer. Well, I guess we better go then, David said. Is Mom still there? Can I talk with her? No, she's gone, Paul said. Then after a pause, he added, she's pretty upset, you know, Dad. David didn't know what to say. No words presented themselves to him. He clung to the receiver as he gazed out through the kitchen window to the mountain beyond, scarred and naked to the elements. 
He began choking up. He put his hand over the mouthpiece, blinking away the tears. Dad? Paul was asking. Dad, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here, Paul, David said, steadying his voice. He took a deep breath. So, you guys are okay? Yeah, we're okay, Paul said. When are you coming home? Well, I've got this job to do here, David said, trying to sound positive, but I'll be home after that. Then suddenly he was struck with an idea. He added, hey, Paul? Yeah? How would you like to come out and join me? Join you? How could I do that? When's your spring break this year? Middle of March, I guess, Paul answered, sounding interested. Well, I'm here until Easter, David said, thinking out loud, and Easter comes early this year. If it coincides with your spring break, why don't you fly down, and you and I could spend my last week here together. Then we could drive back. You'll have your license by then, right? Right, but fly up, you mean, Paul corrected him. You're at the 49th parallel, Dad. We're below the 44th. You're farther north than we are. Right, David said. I guess I am. But you'd love this place, Paul. We could do some whale watching. Did you know that 22,000 gray whales make their migration past here in the spring? 22,000. They have quite a celebration with parades and I don't know what, but I'd love to show you this place. Think about it. Speak to your mom. We can talk about it later. The whales, Paul asked. Yes, what about them? David asked. The whales have a parade? David laughed. It's so good to talk to you, Paul. They said their goodbyes. David could feel seeds of hope being planted. Just think, Paul, joining him for a father and son week and then driving back together. It could be wonderful, not to say also enormously healing. He wished they could be doing it right now. Spring seemed such a long way off. David wondered if Paul would still be as interested in joining him after five more months had gone by. Which led David to begin wondering about how they would handle the Christmas holidays. He wouldn't try to go back, he knew, and they couldn't afford to fly the family out. He guessed they'd be separated over Christmas. He sighed. There was so much about this trip he hadn't thought through. But that was a dark hole he didn't need to jump into right now. It was enough that there was this new possibility, this bright spot on the horizon, this visit from his son. There would be time enough to figure things out as they went along, one day at a time, one foot in front of the other. That's how to get through this thing, he said to himself, whatever it was he was doing. He put on his coat and went out again, waving cheerily at the cottage next door, without waiting to see if the curtains moved. He took the frog prince to the far side of the peninsula. He was ready to explore its wide beaches and its windswept headlands. He was ready to stand on solid ground and fix his gaze upon the vast Pacific Ocean. We were born, born to be wide. We can climb so high. I've been reading from my novel, Passion Tide. Next time, David begins to get a sense of his new community, and not only the quirky human community, but the community of the wind and the waves and the natural world that could just as easily waste him as welcome him. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. Yeah.